This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to episode 68 of Aviation Careers Podcast, a podcast where we give you an inside view to aviation jobs. I am really excited today to have with me somebody who's been flying in China and uh, flying as a captain of a 737. But before we begin, a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, if you like the spot, this podcast, please go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com and move over to the right column and actually click on some of those links there. Those are all of our sponsors, and those are the folks that help us bring this podcast to you. Also, don't forget forget to check out the uh, scholarships guide every week at the bottom of each of these podcasts there's the the scholarship of the week so if you want to check out the scholarship of the week for this podcast aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 68 well on to the episode you know with the growth of travel and aviation in china there's been an increase in the number of piloting jobs and i've re- received many emails from you the listener asking what it's like to fly in china You know, many of you have heard that the opportunities to flying in China are very lucrative. Well, in episode 11, going back a ways, I spoke with Dave Ross, who's the president of Wazink, and uh, he was on the show to explain opportunities in China. So if you get a chance, go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 11. But many of you uh, wanted to know what it's really like to actually fly and live in China. Well, today I have with me Doug Ward, a Boeing 737 captain, who's actually flying in China. Welcome to the show, Doug. Carl, thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Well, this is pretty exciting. You know, Doug, actually, uh, he's, he's uh, flown quite a few different uh, airlines. He's actually based in China, uh, currently flying as a captain on a 737-800 series and has over 13,000 hours of flight time. He's uh, including captain on a DC-10, uh, of course, the 737, uh, 727, the Fokker, and I think also, yes, a Metroliner is what we have, have flown. That's pretty interesting flying there. Uh, he's also served as a Czech Airman and instructor, and he has an extensive background as captain, Czech Airman instructor, and uh, he's done some inc- recruiting also in the past. So we're really excited to have Doug on board here today to find out what it's really like to fly in China, and this is going to be a, a little bit uncensored as to uh, you know what's what's the good, what's the bad, and uh, and also, uh, but but I really the reason we're doing this is because there's there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet I, I don't think gives you the the right impression as to what it's really like to, to fly in China. I will so say though I actually uh, am extremely curious, so I'm I'm just so excited to talk to Doug. So, you know, first of all, but before we start, let's start on a positive note. You know, why, why should people actually consider flying in China, Doug? Well, Carl, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. I do appreciate it. And uh, please know, I, I will be brutally honest uh, for you. So uh, what's important is for people to have the right expectations, uh, because when your expectations don't equal reality, uh, that's when people become frustrated, right? Oh, sure. uh, so I'm happy to be with you and uh, uh, clear clear the air maybe a little bit on China. But uh, some of the the benefits are why would somebody consider uh, China? Uh, of course, many of them uh, are the same for any expat position. You know, whether it's in Europe, South America, or China. Uh, you know, the excitement, the adventure, uh, new cultures, uh, that sort of thing. 
But I will try to be a little bit more specific to China. Uh, China, in relation to a lot of the other areas of the world, is uh, very safe, Carl. Uh, the flying here, uh, you're in brand new aircraft. I mean, as you've probably read in the papers, the uh, Boeing has a bazillion or two aircraft being delivered as well as Airbus to the country. So uh, if I'm in a three-year-old airplane, my first officers are telling me, oh, we have an old airplane today. Uh, so, <laughs> not an old airplane. That's new. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't tell you how many brand new. I mean, directly delivered aircraft I have flown here. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but awesome. uh, at any rate, um, some of the other items, you know. Uh, so, number one, you do have the the safety uh, issue. Uh, we are not in a war zone. Uh, something like that. Uh, for my family, uh, China is very safe, Carl. Uh, so from the standpoint of, uh, I don't mean to imply combat uh, danger, but uh, any of the countries that are facing some of the difficulties that are out there right now, uh, China is very safe. So for me to have my, my two daughters and my wife outside walking in the neighborhood at one in the morning, I could feel perfectly safe. Well, that says uh, a lot. Yeah, it does. And uh, for me, that's very important, uh, obviously. So uh, that's merely a couple. Um, so safety is a big is an issue. And I, you know, I'm, I'm actually gra- glad you brought that up because um, you know, I've helped people go overseas to uh, certain portions of Central Africa. And within six months, they're like, hey, get me back. You know, I, I really this is this is not good, and uh, they they fear for their lives uh, on a daily basis. So um, that's, right. that's good. That's great to hear that it's it's very safe there, both personally and flying wise. Yeah. Well, the uh, one thing's for sure. Uh, back on the aviation side of the picture, uh, there is a lack of experience here in the country. So that's one of the primary drivers besides from a pilot shortage here in China is the experience. Now, certainly some of the major airlines like Air China, China Southern, China Eastern, yes, they've been around for decades, uh, but the others, no. Uh, so there is a lack of experience. Uh, it probably contributes why most of the job opportunities here in China are for captains. The, the basis of a, a pilot career here in China, Carl, is based on the typical cadet program. So what you have is you have uh, major airlines going to the universities. They're picking out the sharpest and brightest kids. Uh, primarily, you know, they're already in school to be accountants, doctors, rocket physics, you know, all kinds of crazy brainy stuff. Uh, and then the, the airline comes and does a recruiting show, and they say, wow, I didn't know a pilot could make this kind of money. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't want to be a nuclear physicist anymore. Uh, and they become cadets into the uh, flight training program. So the, the typical cadet, though, would be chosen from college. They go to an English-speaking country, Canada, America, uh, Australia to do their primary flight instruction uh, up through commercial instrument and high performance. Uh, they come back here 
do a typewriting course, and then they're basically put into the right seat of an airliner. Wow. You mean from commercial yeah. pilot to right seat? That's Absolutely. Incredible. Yeah, there, there's a few smaller steps, but uh, it, the first officers, uh, the local Chinese first officers, range in experience level anywhere from uh, uh, really 400 hours to their most airlines, they're eligible to, to begin what would be a, a captain upgrade program, which I will say is quite extensive, but they can do that at about 2,700 hours. So the typical first officer uh, has an experience level anywhere from 500 to 3,000 hours. That's now, pretty good. That's not, not, that's not too small. I mean, I, I was thinking like 500 hours, but that's quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But one thing that's interesting, uh, and I will say, there are other pilots here in China that maybe would argue with me. Uh, but truly, Carl, in my opinion, uh, I do believe somebody in the CAC, the Chinese FAA, does realize that for the, the vast majority of the country is inexperience. Mm -hmm. Because of that, the CAC is a little over-controlling. So they build in some safety issues. Uh, for example, uh, spacing of aircraft en route is double what we have in the West. Interesting. Now, most people that are familiar or watching aviation, uh, particularly in, in uh, Asia, uh, has read some sort of article about the terrible delays here, which there are. <laughs> Number one, the military controls the airspace. Uh, that's the CAC, and they're not a service, believe me. Uh, <laughs> Whether you're a foreigner or a, or a national, it doesn't matter. Commercial aircraft is extra work for them. Uh, but at any rate, what, what I'm really trying to get at is uh, the CAC, knowing uh, there's a lack of ex great experience, let me put it that way, a lack of great experience, long-term experience, not only in the pilot group, in the air traffic control group, maybe in the the maintenance group, so every facet of aviation is growing here. You know, uh, that in mind, they they build in uh, a buffer. You know, and so for example, uh, like I said, the spacing for aircraft. Uh, the companies, being that they are in China yet, and uh, most are are quite wealthy as far as the companies. I, uh, they're fairly subsidized by the government. Um, but fuel, for example, Carl, uh, I could order a ton, literally a ton, 2,000 pounds of okay. extra fuel on any leg I want without oh. question. Well, that's awesome. Uh, now, do they want to save fuel? Yes, they do. But as a pilot, as a decision maker, as a captain, it makes my job very easy. Oh, sure. <laughs> If I know there's some weather en route or there's potential delays at a, at a destination and I feel uh, I want a, a little more buffer for a second alternate or even a third alternate, um, I am never questioned. Uh, so there's no chief pilot calling me up saying, wow, Douglas, uh, you know, this past month, why have you been carrying so much fuel? <laughs> no. Um, now, uh, sometimes these built-in buffers 
are actually turn into frustrations for the pilot group, though. So, for example, if one single-cell thunderstorm should pass over uh, a major airport, it's most likely they'll close the whole airport down, and not just for 15 minutes, but for maybe an hour. Oh, wow. Uh, now, we're talking about a city that would be the size of San Francisco, L.A., New York. <laughs> How do they deal with it? It's, well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, granted, now, I would look at this uh, scenario and watch the thunderstorm, of course, being safety conscious, but knowing uh, you have, it would, it would be nice to get to your destination at some point in time while the thunderstorm passes. There's a wind shift. Maybe we can land uh, on the opposite runway. Well, they will just close the airport down. If it's snowing, maybe the same thing. <laughs> now, you may have to divert and go to your alternate, and it chews up uh, four extra hours out of your day, granted, and potentially you have some upset passengers. But at the end of the day, was it safer? It probably was. <laughs> right, right. You know, so... This is why I say, Carl, some, are, some pilots, probably most, would argue with me the way I just explained it. But my heart does feel that somebody in the CAC does recognize a lesser level of experience. And so to make up a greater safety margin, they build in some of these things. Sometimes the effect is negative, but the, the real issue is safety. Right. You know, by so it saying doesn't that, mean it's not frustrating, right? But right. you have to look what's behind the frustration, so to speak. It sounds like you know by by Ewing saying this, it sounds like you truly have a pilot shortage, as opposed to in the U.S. where we we have a, a bit of a shortage, but it 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 pales, I think, in comparison to what you're talking about. Yeah, it does absolutely. There's just unbelievable growth here. Uh, when I first got here, it was interesting, Carl, because. One of the things that I, I enjoyed asking my first officers when I got here uh, was, of course, okay, where are you from? And he might say uh, uh, some city. Of course, I've never heard of 99.9% .9 of the cities in China when I first arrived here. And I'd say, oh, that's nice. Uh, he'd tell me where about it is. I'd pull out a map. He'd show me, and I'd say, well, how, how many people do you think live in your city? And he'd say, uh, well, first of all, he'd describe it as being a small city. And he'd say, oh, maybe 9 million people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Carl, <laughs> I am not kidding you. So, obviously, I got a big laugh out of this. So, it became a habit of mine to ask this. Finally, one first officer tells me he's from a small village. So, he tells me this. And it's out, out in far, far west China near a city called Urumqi. And uh, it's an area that is very different than the primary population bank of the east coast of China. Uh, and it, it's very fascinating to me. So I'm asking him, wow, well, how far away is this, you know, your small village from Urumqi? Uh, it's, it's maybe three and a half hours. Okay. Well, how many people would you expect live in your, your small village? And his answer was 200,000. Wow. <laughs> Wow, that but, puts things in perspective. Well, it does. And so what you have here, Carl, is you have cities that, you know, outside of China, nobody's heard of, that are 5 million people that have never had airline service. Wow. 
So uh, the growth of the airlines is uh, is quite large. The mm-hmm. company that I work for is a primarily a domestic carrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do uh, regional, international, maybe as far south as Bali and uh, north to Japan, but primarily we're domestic. And I'll tell you our uh, route structure absolutely looks like a spider web. Mm-hmm. It's it's unbelievable. So yeah, the it's interesting because you have you have this diversity in in all your routes and these cities that you go to are rather large. What that also tells me is these small quote unquote villages that you actually have more potential for growth and especially in the future because that's a lot of people that haven't been served yet. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. One of the things that I can't answer the question I'm about to pose to you, Carl, <laughs> but one of, one of the ways that people uh, determine the growth of a country or the expected growth is actually how many passport holders there are. Uh, so you can... Uh, of course, everybody looks at the, a growing middle class and disposable income and that sort of thing as well. Uh, and that's obviously well known, uh, the growth of that in China as well. But uh, one interesting... Yeah, what, one in, I mean, and let me uh, go off on a little bit of a tangent here, uh, Carl, because one of the things about coming here to China is... A bit of the glamour uh, does still exist here for a pilot. Uh, I mean, in comparison to the the old glamorous days of a Pan Am or Eastern or, uh, you know, the, the foundations of American aviation, so to speak, when you dream back of those days, you can witness a little bit of it here uh, still, you know, in, in a respect level, uh, even some of the... the trinkets that they do for you. So one of the items I was going to mention uh, is, I mean, as far as the, the airlines being rich, so to speak, I'm not sure if that's the right word to use, but uh, for example, I am picked up uh, and brought to work every day and immediately brought home afterwards by a company van. Now, our our airline is about a 100, 110 aircraft airline, and we have five simulators. Uh, now, what's common in China for all corporations, not just in airlines, but of course, uh, transportation is often provided to the worker here in China. So it is very common that the uh, corporation would pick up their employees throughout the city uh, at certain points and bring them in. So in that regards, I'm not necessarily being held on a pedestal as special. They're not saying, oh, Doug Ward is a captain from America, and as such, we're going to drive a special van out and pick him up. No, this is very common uh, culturally in China, but it's amazing because what airline in America could operate a fleet of, I'm sure, a few hundred vans, coach buses, we have five simulators, like I say. We have dormitories. It, I call it the campus, the airline headquarters. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's really neat. And that paints a, a very interesting picture because here in the United States, 
Um, I, one of the complaints I hear often is I just feel like a bus driver. And and not that there's anything wrong with being a bus driver. It's just that there there isn't this level of respect, I guess, like you said here in the U.S. I I notice it when I go overseas, and uh, you know when I pull to the gate as a pilot in another country like South America, you're treated much differently than yeah. you are uh, within the United States. And uh, you know people push you out of the way. They do all that. It's there. Whereas in in other countries, the the culture is different in that you're shown a lot more respect, and that's what what China sounds like it is, and that that's that's good though. I, I think it's nice. I mean, not that I need that. It's just that that's that's a, a nice for everybody to be shown that type of respect. I think that's awesome, and the fact that you get right. picked up that's that's pretty cool. I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, that would never happen here in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I didn't mention that the. The bus drivers are death defined, but <laughs> but I do get picked up nonetheless. <laughs> it's exciting driving to the airport. Absolutely. But you know that the uh, you know as far as the flying benefits, you, you get to. I'm assuming you do some really cool flying. What what type of things do you get to see though? Uh, is it much different than flying in the U.S.? No, uh, and in fact. Uh, I think you made one assumption that might be wrong. Uh, however, I did say our route structure is is a very thick web. The uh, foreigners are actually only allowed to fly to a certain number of destinations, Carl. Oh, okay. Uh, so although uh, my airline, geez, I'm sure it flies to hundreds of, of cities, for me it's probably uh, 40. So, so. Uh, to make this clear, if I'm a foreigner and I come to work for in China as a contractor, I won't be able to go to every single destination that airline flies for. That is correct. I am limited to where I can fly. So uh, part of it does deal with uh, communications because the military does still control the airspace and uh, are the air traffic controllers. Uh, there's a limited English capability. Uh, so, of course, the major uh, cities, obviously Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, you know, 50 others, uh, do have English capability and I can fly there. Uh, the other aspect, of course, is uh, that I could potentially be a double top secret spy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I am not allowed to fly over all airspace or all route structure, anyhow, right. uh, even though what I can see on Google Earth is probably twice as much <laughs> as, <laughs> as what I could see from my own cockpit. <laughs> right, right. Well, that, that's really interesting. And that, you know, here's another thing that I, I've heard, and uh, so maybe we can dispel some other myths here. Uh, when flying in China, you have a captain and a first officer, and of course on all these boards you hear that, oh, the first officer only has 250 hours or 500 hours. They never do the landings. That's the first thing you hear. And then the next thing you hear is that you have to have an a interpreter either in the right seat or in the jump seat. Somebody has to speak uh, Chinese. So how about those two things? Are those true? Okay. Uh, no, good questions. Let, let's tackle the first one. Um, or... Uh, rather the second one, because that's quick. Few. The, there are times uh, when a foreigner is faced with having an interpreter in the aircraft. Very, very, very seldom, though. Uh, 
for the most part, the first officers, uh, one of the reasons why they are going to uh, their primary training in English-speaking countries is obviously to learn the language. Uh, they're picking out uh, the best English level capability as they can. Granted, sometimes it's, it's sketchy. Uh, if you get too far off of the aviation subject, you may start losing them conversationally, so to speak. Um, but it is part of their, uh, I'm going to use the word upgrade training. Now, here in, in China, uh, they work on a program where the first officers have different levels. And many airlines have different levels. So I can't say this as a blanket statement for the country, but one airline may have four levels of first officer before they're able to enter a captain program. Another may have nine. It's just a matter of where you draw the line, so to speak. But most of the the airlines at some point in there, uh, you may be going from a level two to a level three. An English exam is required of you. Now, uh, the the accuracy of the uh, ICAO English exam here in China could be debated, Carl. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I've met many level four to level six certified uh, English capability that I cannot communicate with. <laughs> so let's just say that box does get filled. <laughs> so you have to have a level four, I assume? Is that the minimum? Yes. Okay. At minimum, right. Okay. But no, those are the ICAO standards for English speaking. That's right. right. That's okay. right. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying that maybe the ICAO exam might be different for Chinese nationals. <laughs> well, I, I understand that. You know. Well, and I guess the person giving the exam may be also a Chinese national, so there, there's some of that there, too. Right, you know, right. So, maybe unintentionally they, they lean exactly. towards Exactly. You know. But, you know, generally speaking, there, there's not a communication problem. Until, uh, you know, sometimes you may have to talk a little slower. You may have to choose your words a little more simpler, that sort of thing. But in an expat scenario, this is an everyday, an every hour uh, issue. You know, I've often said I'm losing my English capability uh, as being an expat because quite often, even if you're not talking to a national, you may be speaking to another foreigner that does not have good English capability. Uh, so you do learn to choose your your words accordingly, so to speak. But getting back to the real question, though, um, it's very, very rare that an interpreter has to be used. It, has it occurred and does it occur? Yes, Carl, it does. But on a very infrequent basis. It's not the way they want to do things, put it that way. They sure. will do it in order to make a scenario uh, work, uh, but it's not the norm by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in fact, I've been here for six years, and I've never had one. Um, Interesting. Yeah, but now getting to the first officer's landing, uh, this is another very interesting item in China. Uh, that is true to a certain degree, and every airline has their own uh, rules. So, for example, 
uh, at the airline that I'm at, we have four levels of first officer. Uh, and we have two fleets. We have Airbus and we also have Boeing. About a 50-50 split. Now, I'm not an Airbus guy, nor have I ever been, Carl. So I'm rather ignorant about Airbus. Okay. But I do understand that with their, their joystick, uh, there is an issue of two people controlling the aircraft at the same time. Only one stick has precedence. And right. If, and there's, there are actually uh, some to together. Um, that's actually what I fly, the Airbus. And uh, okay. they, they sum the two together. But go ahead. I'm, it, it's interesting because it, I, I think I know what your point's going to be here. You can't, uh, you can't tell who's flying and when. <laughs> it, right. And apparently you have to uh, push a button to override the other or something or other. But yeah. So our, our policy on the Airbus is actually... That the at least with the foreign captains, the first officer cannot do a takeoff or landing, not oh. any level. Interesting. Um, now on the Boeing, uh, the first three. Now I happen to also be an instructor for the airline I work for, so I do have my Chinese uh, TRI, uh, and I do training in the aircraft as well, uh, but. For a non-instructor uh, captain on the Boeing fleet, the first three levels of first officer cannot take off or land. Only the most experienced, which is the level four at our airline, can do a takeoff or landing um, in the aircraft. So now you can transfer control uh, at the appropriate time uh, so he can still do some hand flying uh, on departure and arrival but they are not allowed to take off and landing. Okay, so not allowed, meaning you don't have discretion to say, hey, why don't you do this landing? You, you can't well, do that in the Airbus. It, right, yeah. In, in the Airbus, it's, there's no question. No first officer will do the takeoff or landing with a foreign captain. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. That's, uh, that's, so that, that definitely is true as far as the Airbus. But on the Boeing side, it's... It's a different story because you do have the, the, the yoke that's in front of you and you can always take over and see the control movements. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, but, you know, one of the, the interesting things, and Carl, with your experience, I know you'll recognize this, but, you know, these guys are quite sharp and they're, uh, their training is rather extensive. They're held to a, a high degree culturally by their, their own Chinese uh, uh, staff and instructors group. So flying by instruments, I'll give them credit. They're actually quite good. Right. Um, but one of the things that I always warn our new captains is not to let that lull you into a false sense of security. Because one of the things that you know America is beautiful for, wonderful, and uh, today I really have an appreciation for it <laughs> is the experience we get taking off and landing, whether it's in the regionals or flight instructing or uh, flying power lines or you know whatever it might be. Uh, we do get a lot of that good basic fundamentals of flying. Western pilots are great hand flying pilots uh, to the vast majority, but here that's not true. So the most dangerous scenario uh, is when you actually hand it over to hand flying because he's at, in, in reality, he has quite few landings. 
So, uh, <laughs> wow, I never thought of that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit backwards almost. Right. You know, so this is why I I give a heads up to our new captains because they do fly wonderfully by instruments. You know, and uh, in comparison, I I hate to put my own self down, but I look back at when I was a five, six, eight hundred hour pilot or whatever. I'm thinking, wow, these guys are actually quite good. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Um, but remember, you know, they went from their uh, commercial instrument multi straight into the commercial aircraft and that type of operations. Uh, so, yeah, their instrument flying is really good. But then when they go to go visual, that's when you actually have to be very careful. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because it seems that, uh, you know, I've been, I see that sometimes, uh, especially at the regionals when you, you have people go through these very quick programs and uh, some people will not look outside. Um, you know, their whole, all their training has been just doing instrument flying and, uh, and doing a visual approach from 25 miles out uh, will not happen sometimes with, with someone <laughs> who's, who's got their 800 right. hours or so. Right, and, and it, it's really not a uh, fault of China as much as it's inherent in a cadet-type system. Exactly. You know, so I, I don't mean to entirely pound on China for that as much as that type of uh, experience, you know, uh, program. Yeah, and and you see more of that happening here in the U.S. because people are going through those types of programs, but uh, but more so in China. It's it's always fascinated me uh, because I've worked at many different flight schools where they've come over, uh, especially when I go up to Moncton or in Canada and see all these people Chinese flying in the pattern all day and all night. It, it's amazing. Um, but the great thing about it is those contracts are great for the, the folks in the U.S. and Canada and Australia so they can they can learn their English. Um, I, I had a challenge uh, learning the language, and I'd have to ask you, do, are, how is your, your Chinese or, or what, what version of Chinese do you use? Oh, gosh. Well, I am at the, uh, the level of making my life comfortable. And, and no further. So I have my grocery store Chinese, my taxi cab Chinese, my restaurant Chinese. <laughs> but uh, having a conversation, no, I, I am not fluent. Uh, my understanding is becoming much better now, Carl. Uh, but uh, to give myself an, own, uh, an excuse, uh, everybody comes to a, a foreign country wanting to learn the language and particularly for our uh, guys that are coming either single or just married with no children, I really, really pressure them to, to learn the language because it's an incredible opportunity to do so, obviously. Uh, but, but there's also the reality of being here with a family. Uh, so I, I work as a pilot. Uh, I have another uh, job that takes some time. Uh, I'm raising my my family, and so on a priority level, <laughs> right. I have to I have to push learning the Chinese language down a little bit. Now, for my daughters, I absolutely demand it, uh, and they are actually doing quite well now. They're not only are they conversing, but they're able to write stories in Chinese. Wow. They can read it. It's incredible. I will walk in while they're doing homework, and I'm like, wow. Uh, what what is that? And, you know, my daughter might say, "Well, Papi, this is the uh, blah blah blah." Well, can you actually read that? 
<laughs> you know, it's incredible. Soon they'll be teaching you Chinese. Oh, they already are, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That, that's, that's, that right there is pretty cool. If someone's thinking about bringing their families, is to enable them to actually learn a, a language, especially Chinese, which is, is incredibly popular as far as the number of people that, that speak it. That, that's right. awesome. Absolutely. You know, be, before we get on too much of the personal side, as far as the the flying side, and then I really want to hit the personal side because that's that's a big sure. big challenge. Um, the the other, as far as flying in China, I, I'm trying to figure out: is there any difference between procedures? For I'll give you an example: when I'm flying in the mountains down in South America, there are certain challenges as to when you're cleared for an approach and and what you need to do. And there's a lot of times where uh, you don't know whether you're you're supposed to do the procedure turn or when you're not. Is that same level of confusion there in China? No, not quite. Uh, if anything, there's over-controlling here, Carl. And to most Westerners, it, it's frustrating uh, because your, your VNAV button primarily becomes useless. Um, really? you're, you're stair-stepped up. So climbing up uh, to a cruise altitude, n- number one, you never get to your flight plan altitude, but on your way up, you'll stop every 2,000 feet. Uh, seldom are you, you know, just doing a departure straight out and uh, going to cruise altitude. On arrivals, the same thing now. Many of the major airports and, and many more are actually... Uh, getting RNAV arrivals now. Uh, there used to be a different GPS system. The uh, uh, WGS-84 was not here in China. They had their own system. Uh, although the, the aircraft were equipped with uh, WGS-84 uh, from Jeppesen, mm-hmm. most of the, pri- the large airports have gone to uh, WGS-84, so Everything lines up exactly, but the main point is you're over-controlled here. So as an example, we've had, I live in Shenzhen, China, which is across the bay from Hong Kong. Uh, We've had an RNAV arrival uh, for two, three years, and I will tell you, they will radar vector you exactly right over the darn thing. (laughs) (laughs) Five times a day, every day, you know, and of course, as you know, you could just touch your VNAV, LNAV, uh, follow the whole thing in, no communications until you switch to tower. But so the radio frequency is quite busy and the controlling is over controlling. Now, the, the description that you gave of South America, I often use the phrase of self-ATC. You know, right. every country has a certain amount of leeway, so to speak. If you're taking off out of Amsterdam, doing a departure, and you are one degree off, you're probably going to get yelled at. Uh, if in if you're in America, uh, going into Chicago or JFK, you know, maybe the same thing, or up to three, four, five degrees. You know, uh, here the most of it is rather. Um, uh, what you see is what you got. So in other words, what, what your FMC is plotting out or what you're flying is, is where you are flying. But I will say there's a huge uh, leeway in airspeed. 
So as an example, most of the airlines, when you come here as a, a captain, uh, your first line training is, is actual observation flights. Now, it may sound silly, but it's very worth the time to sit in the back seat and watch what goes on just to learn how a foreign captain relates to his crew, his uh, flight attendant crew, uh, all of that sort of thing. So the intrapersonal uh, aspect of commanding an aircraft. Uh, and then, of course, ATC operations. We, When we come to China, we all know how to operate the aircraft because they're hiring us as current and qualified captains. So it's not a matter of learning the aircraft as much as learning your environment. My first observation flight, we're coming into the destination, and the first officer reaches up to the, the airspeed, and he must have cranked off about 50 knots, which horrified me. And I'm like, because I have a headset on, and I certainly did not hear air traffic control tell us to slow to 250 or whatever it was. So a little bit unlike me, uh, I tapped the captain, who was a foreigner, on the shoulder, and I said, well, you know, with, with all due respect, I didn't hear radio call to slow down. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking there's probably 100 aircraft ready to come up our tail. And he says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. This is how we do it here. And I'm thinking to myself, how we do what here? <laughs> but what, what I came to learn quite quickly is there is a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek song and dance. In other words, ATC expects you to slow down at that point. Now, nowhere, of course, is this written or uh, on an approach plate or an arrival or anything like that. It's one of the uh, mysteries that you learn when you get here. And as much as I hate to say it, because I, I'd love to pound on, on the first officer for this, but I tested it out. You know, I'd come barreling into a, an arrival area, uh, 300 knots or 320 or something, and the first officer might look at me and say, well, Douglas, maybe we should slow down here. <laughs> I'll say, no, 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 ATC. He's not telling us anything. We keep going. You know? <laughs> I'm going to test the theory on here. And sure enough, I would say about one nautical mile later, here is ATC telling me to slow to 250. Interesting. So the fact of the matter is the first officer was right. Right. But uh, it's this rote memorization of something that was passed along by his instructor and his instructor to his instructor and so on and so forth. So that's why I call it kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, understanding. Right. Uh, ATC somewhat expects you to take that action. If you don't, he will say something. Well, that's interesting because, you know, for instance, like you said in the U.S., I mean, if you start slowing down, you know, that's tribal knowledge, say, going into New York or, or Chicago, if you slow to below 250, you're going to get yelled at. Like, hey, what are you doing slowing down? You know, we need to get some planes in here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not Absolutely. that you can't slow down because there's no, you know, they, they, you can do whatever you want speed-wise, but they're, they're, they're expecting you to stay fast. If you're flying into, you know, Sioux Falls in South Dakota, you're, you can slow down whenever you want because you don't have a ton of people <laughs> behind you. Uh, so that's a, it's exactly. a, that's, that's a great example. Knowing that knowledge, shall we call it tribal knowledge, about flying in places, when to slow down, et cetera, uh, that's fascinating. I, I, never even, I never heard of that until you just said that. that that's yeah, that's so, so interesting. There, there is a little bit of that, but uh, in actuality, not a lot. Not a lot. 
Right. So what other challenges are there flying-wise before we move on? Is, uh, oh, upgrade. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, you, you mentioned before something about the upgrade taking longer than most places in the U.S.? Well, for, for the Chinese uh, first officer, yes. I, you know, I just have to say uh, it, it is extensive, you know, but once again, it is a little bit uh, not unique to China, but to a cadet program, you know. So uh, one of the, uh, you know, they'll have, of course, every airline is different, Carl, as far as what they're going to have to do, but uh, they're under quite a bit of pressure and they take quite a lot of training to get there. Uh, even once they're checked out, they're still supervised for a few hundred hours. You know, it's just not a 50 hours minimum uh, line training or something. Um, so they do go through their own sort of uh, hazing, so to speak. Um, but here, the uh, one of the other type frustrations of, of being a pilot is, and this one is maybe a little bit uh, unique to China, not entirely, but the background of it is, and in any cadet program, particularly in Asia, uh, you have a lot of rote memorization because that's their education system. And I would even argue to a certain degree it's necessary because of the Chinese characters they use for writing. You know, it's not, you, you cannot sound out a Chinese character. <laughs> you know, you have to absolutely memorize, pure and simple, rote memory. Uh, and so rote memory is a large part of their education system. Uh, in my opinion, primarily on the bad side, of course, being a Westerner, because we enjoy the creativity, the thinking out of the box, all of those catchphrases, you know, but the fact of the matter is, is it's true. We learn to think very creatively uh, in the West. In China, not so much. And so uh, the first officers have a tough position, I will say, particularly the ones that fly with the foreigners because they live in a dual world. And by that, what I mean is uh, they have an English capability, hopefully, uh, that allows them to fly with the foreigners, but yet their career is dependent upon their Chinese supervisors, instructors, and Chinese airline. Uh, so the education in the airline is very rote. You know, you, you, I see a lot of surface knowledge, but maybe not a lot of depth. I see a lot of, you do this only because my instructor told me we do this. I don't know why I do this. I just do it because my instructor told me. Uh, which could be technique or it could be SOP or it could be, that's just the way I like to see it. <laughs> right, right. You know, so uh, when it comes to the SOP, I'll say they can memorize it great. Uh, but let me give you uh, an example I had last month. We, we pushed back uh, from the gate and uh, we were going to an international destination and usually those are uh, quite on time and the controller himself even sounded surprised, but he says, oh, I'm sorry, you, you have a, a one-hour delay, but you know what? You can just park the aircraft right there. Where you're at is okay. There's no, we're not blocking a taxiway or we were at, on a portion of the airport that wasn't heavily used. So I looked over at the first officer and I said, great, let's shut down the engines. And, and he looks at me and he says, well, Douglas, we can't do that. 
I said, why not? And he says, we don't have a procedure for it. I said, well, <laughs> what, what if we pretended we just pulled into the gate and the jetway was at L1? What would we do? Well, I would hook up the APU on electrics and you'd shut down the engines. Great. Well, you know what? I think I see the jetway pulled up to our aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as an example, I, I think you get where right, I'm going. Right, yeah. But you can see where that leads to a frustration for the foreigner, so to speak. You know, where uh, the first officer has an understanding, but because there is no policy or there is no procedure for it, I can't possibly do it. Right. right. You get what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> and that, that's, I mean, it's funny, but it's, boy, it's a challenge. It's, it's, uh, and, and, you know, honestly, that happens here in the U.S. too. I mean, you know, you, when you're new to an airline and you, you try to do everything by procedure because you're just like hanging on, you know, by the, the tail of the aircraft and you're like, oh, wait a minute, there's no procedure for that. And the captain looks at you like, uh, yeah, we'll, I'll show you. Uh, but that's not, you know, it's you got to you have to let the captain show you how to do that, uh, you know, especially when you're new to an airplane. Um, but it's not. Uh, but you see it more often in in the Western world, and and I guess you would see it in China, which brings. Yeah, well, yeah. So there's a lot of book smart here, mm -hmm. but the the depth is not as as deep as I'm accustomed to. Right, right. How about? And, go ahead. Well, and, and to a large degree, it's, you know, as part of that education system, you know, they're not taught to question. They're not, uh, and particularly, uh, you know, thinking out of the box or creatively or uh, association, so to speak. It's, it's memorized, you know. So uh, that's where a lot of frustrations happen. So you get a uh, mechanical rote type action. How about culturally? How do you deal with, um, I know I've had challenges in the past dealing with students that were uh, from like an, an Asian, like a Korean or a Chinese airline that were, were learning in the U.S. How do you correct them? Because I know I didn't do it properly at first and actually had their manager come over and speak with me, say, hey, is there a problem with this student? I was like, no, no, I just wanted to let him know what, what he was doing wrong and he just has to fix it, that's all. And I guess there was... Uh, they're a lot more serious about their learning and doing it right that when you do give them some feedback, you have to be, I, I found I had to be a little more careful because um, that, that's a big part of their culture. I think you've alluded to this, that, that they're very intense and they want to make, they want to please you because you're the teacher or you're the captain. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, you, you are right in that regards. To a certain degree, they're expected to do it right the first time. Right. You know, and, to, to a large extent, that's uh, Asian, and I'm not just picking on China, but all along mm -hmm. Asia. Uh, that's the way it is. You study it, and you show your teacher, instructor, you already do it right. Uh, so unfortunately, you have a, an environment where there's not this learn by error. You know, you have to do it right the first time. Uh, so there does create that apprehension in the first officer to create an error, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and that applies to operating the aircraft. Now, the, the way that I approach it, lots of times uh, where I've found guys to really open up is I explain to them before 
we even start. So uh, during a pre-briefing of some sort, whether it's in the the briefing rooms or in a cockpit, uh, I will bring up certain issues. Uh, and most of the time, uh, it opens up the communication and the uh, relief. So as an example, many of the cockpits here uh, do have a, a second first officer flying in the jump seat, Carl, mm-hmm. primarily to gain experience. So this is the first step after they come back from their primary training is they may have to do a few hundred hours or six months, whatever the airline decides, as a, so to speak, professional observer. He's just watching what goes on in the cockpit. Now, he's already been tested. He knows flows. He's, you know, all of this. And unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, at times, kind of like I can't quite remember what the phrase was in, in America when you know, you're at that overconfident level of, of kind of a commercial instrument pilot who thinks he knows not everything on the planet, kind of like a teenager maybe. Like a complacency kind <laughs> you of You know, but the fact of the matter is, is they actually know nothing, right, you know. Right. That's, that's maybe uh, to some degree occurs to the uh, observer, the first officer there. You know, he's just completed his training overseas. He comes back. He's got a type rating. He's got this nice beautiful uniform on he's sitting in the cockpit of a 737 and he just thinks he's uh king but what what i've what i've learned to do uh is when i i meet one that i have not met before or or is flying in my cockpit and i'm doing the the briefing i'll i'll say uh yang xiang wang whichever it is (laughs) Uh, i said you know i so first of all, I acknowledge that he already knows quite a bit of what's going on in the aircraft. And I said, however, today when we're taking off, if you should see a master caution light come on, or any light for that matter, please do not yell reject, but tell me what light you see. And just like that, when we're coming in to land, if you should see a truck on the runway or another airplane or birds, do not yell uh, go around, but tell me what you see, because those two words, reject or go around, can be very confusing coming from the observer seat. <laughs> right, right. Now, when he hears that, I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, Carl, there's this great big sigh of relief coming out of him, like, ah, oh, Captain, I, I did not know that. Thank you. You know, as if I... I, I just got done speaking to the words of Solomon or something. <laughs> you know, but so in, in answering your question, what I've found is first I, I acknowledge, you know, that what they've learned already. And then I try to tell them something from my perspective, you know, so that number one, I'm not insulting an instructor that he may previously have had, you know, or maybe as his manager, for example. Um, so there's a, a standby uh, approach mode that, according to SOP, you select it on, you arm it when you're on uh, basically dog leg to final. Now, I'm flying along one day and we're going through our 10,000 feet and uh, we do our normal flow there, 
turn on the landing lights, we signal the flight attendants, and the first officer reaches over and he, he arms that. I think, huh, that's fine, you know, whatever, I don't care. You know, it can be on all flight for that matter, it doesn't really matter. Right. But then the next day, I'm flying with another first officer, and sure enough, we go through the exact same spot, and he does the exact same thing. I'm thinking, well, that's a coincidence. Two guys in two days. Of course, the third day I'm flying, <laughs> and as you can predict, the exact same thing happened. But of, of course, this time I could not contain myself. And I looked over at the first officer, and I said, you know, I have a question for you. Have, have we had a recent change in the SOPs? And he's like, Captain, no. I said, well, well, correct me if I'm not mistaken, but I thought I remembered we typically arm the standby approach mode when we're on intercepting intercept to uh, the localizer. Oh, yes, but my instructor told me this is a good time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, lo and behold, you know, my last three first officers had all flown with the same instructor, you know, so technique being taught is SOP. Right, right. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a, that's a really interesting story. I guess that, that's, that's yeah. So, so so when I do that, you know, I go well from from my perspective or from my background or blah blah blah, you know. And then I kind of try to see where it came from out of them and why, and then resolve or try to teach. Right. Well, that's good. I mean, that, that's awesome that you do that too. And I, I would assume there's other captains that would do the same. I mean, it's it's to interject like that. Well, the nice thing about Westerners is almost naturally uh, we like to share, you know. And and uh, as pilots, we like to mentor. You know, we we grew up that way, and that's the way we are. Uh, you know. But to a certain degree, I'll also say sometimes it, it does get tiring teaching how to use the radar 5,000 different times. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> to the same guy. Yeah, to the same guy. <laughs> yeah I, I understand. I understand that as being an instructor. But. So, you know, that this sounds pretty cool, the, the flying and all, but, but how about, you know, living in China? I, I, let's, let's move on to that and, and uh, you know, mention some things personally and, um, first of all, I guess the, the one question I got is how about women? Uh, do they hire women, uh, in, cause there's certain cultures, I guess that it's not, it's somewhat frowned upon, although that's changing. Um, would that be right? Uh, they do. Okay. They, a- they actually do. And they, uh, interestingly enough, uh, we had, we hired a, a Danish gal, uh, great pilot, uh, very experienced, very skilled, uh, and she was, uh, I'm just going to say, probably somewhere between 40 and 50 uh, years old, and she got over here in the airline, uh, wanted to kind of make a big deal of it, as you would assume, you know, a woman pilot, uh, you know, this is big. Well, she actually didn't want anything to do with it because she had already lived through that uh, in the Netherlands. <laughs> you know, she broke the ground there once, you know, 15, 20 years ago already, uh, you know, and was put on, a, on display and on a pedestal and all of that. And so she really didn't want to do it all over again here for a Chinese airline. <laughs> but uh, we do have... Uh, 
a handful of uh, women in the cadet program right now at the airline I'm at. Uh, I do hear them on the radio uh, not often, but they're there. So they are certainly breaking into the industry here, absolutely. And the airlines are not afraid to hire a woman foreign captain either. Right. So it's not quite as prevalent in the U.S., but it sounds like it's moving forward. Um, yeah, yeah, it's nowhere near like the U.S., but it's not prohibitive either. Right, right. And the, I mean, culturally, it it's not – you don't find an issue with it culturally, do you? Uh, no, no. no. Because we, you know, it's interesting. I I just finished a trip with a uh, um, um, captain, and she said that the uh, sometimes what happens to her is a passenger will complain like they hadn't seen her the whole flight, and see the assumption there was that she was the flight attendant, and she's like, "Of course you didn't <laughs> see me. I was flying the airplane," and uh, you know, so those stereotypes even here in you know in the Western world they still stick. You know, that still happens right. here. Uh, so that it was, it was like wow, you know, and, and she she would tell me all the it was it was so much fun listening to these stories and you know how people assume things. A good example is me, you know, I'm a, I'm I'm older and I have gray hair, so people a lot of times they they come to me and say, Captain, what do you want us to do? And I said, Well, um, I would do this, but why don't you ask the cat, the actual captain? And uh, and they look in the cockpit and it's this this lady sitting there. And it's like, Oh, that's the captain. Yes, that's the captain. So you still see those those stereotypes, I guess, in in right. too. So you can't say that's true, you know, not true overseas. So so those those are the, and the reason I brought that up, that was a question that came up online. You know what? Uh, how about women? You know, I hear women can't fly overseas in China. I said, No, I'm pretty sure that's not true, but I will ask the question of of Doug. So so that is yeah, well, thank you, did. Yes, they yeah. can't. Yeah, awesome. The one thing too about about living overseas. When you know, in a previous life, I helped uh, furloughed pilots, and uh, we would send some of them over to China and look at the opportunities there. One of the things that that came back uh, from some people was there was some some dramatic cultural differences uh, that they never thought about. One of them being when they went to the hospital for their blood tests. I guess at the time uh, they didn't use gloves, and they freaked out about it. You know, the, the, something like that, and they said, "Gosh, you know, I can't believe this." Is there anything else? Uh, and I don't know if that's true throughout the. It may just been a, a one-off situation, but is it? Is there anything else that people need to prepare themselves for in going to China, or is there something that they should think about and say, "Hey, wait a minute, this may not be for me. I'm used to this in my Western culture. I can never handle it over there." Right. Uh, it's a very interesting question, Carl. You know, and. The best thing, absolutely, is to get real information. Uh, I've often described, you know, expat or international experiences aren't for everybody. And it doesn't mean a person is good or bad. Uh, It's just a matter of whether you're wired for this type of thing or not. Uh, Now, culturally-wise, I'm I'm amazed on a daily basis, I'll, I'll tell you, but I thrive on it, you know. Uh, some of the things that I would say are gross or I don't like, I now this is going to sound maybe a little, I don't know, not touchy-feely or, or something or other, but I try to use them as learning experiences, you know. So, I mean, one of the gross things here in China is, uh, I'm going to paint with a very wide paintbrush here, but some of their uh, uh, personal habits are rather disgusting to foreigners. You know, it's nothing for uh, to be walking down the sidewalk and somebody will sound like they're 
hacking up a, a fur ball, uh, coughing, you know, and, and then they'll spit right at your feet and uh-huh. you're just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, uh, how awful. But, you know, I will take my two daughters and uh, when we first got here, you know, it's, it's nothing to them anymore, of course, right. <laughs> but when we first got here, I'd look at them and I'd say, hey, hey you know, here in China, this is okay for a Chinese person. But I said, where we are from, we do not do this. You know, and this is why. We believe this, that, and another thing. You know, so I, I would try to lear- turn it into a, a learning experience, so to speak. It doesn't make the situation any nicer, you know, any cuter or more becoming. But uh, so some of those differences... Yeah, you do have to have a certain amount of uh, brushing it off, acceptance. Uh, there's many words a, a guy could use, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> depending on whether he's if he's on tape or not. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> well, no, and I understand that. I mean, there's uh, you know, I've lived in another culture and. And there were certain things I, I very much disagreed with, the way they would handle certain things. Uh, certain things were small, uh, other things were large. Um, and, you know, one of them, say, for instance, garbage. Uh, I'm not sure if this is true there, but say they dump garbage into the street or in the sewer and leave it out on the road or they dump it in the water. You know, that I'd be opposed to. I'd be like, hey, wait a minute, we should not dump the garbage in the water. Um, and so those type of things I might speak out about. But then, you know, you have to you have to kind of choose your battles, but you also have to accept the fact that you're in this foreign foreign land and and you're well, it, there. It is true, and uh, to a certain degree, you know, we all come here and uh, in any expat scenario, not China being unique. Uh, there's what I call a fuse. Everybody has a fuse uh, that starts burning, and and that fuse is associated to those things you miss at home. You know. That, that mountain you climb every day or the lake you fish in every weekend or the, the family picnics you share with your relatives, you know, whatever. But everybody has a certain amount of time before it's like, oh, I, ju- I just need a very blue sky or a this, and, and you have to release, so to speak. And whether that's a trip back home or a trip somewhere in the region, you know, whatever, and you escape and you, you exhale and you come back and you're able to accept things again. Now, that's, that's true anywhere, Carl. Not, it's, it's just true if you leave your home country. Uh, so, of course, those things are real here as well. Uh, some of the most common uh, complaints, of course, is pollution. Okay? Uh, you cannot ignore that. Uh, in China, is it's terribly fascinating because it, it, the country by geography is as large as the U.S., so there's as many uh, different people and, and cultures here, but, of course, uh, that are four to 5,000 years in length. So it's a terribly interesting place to be, uh, but you cannot ignore the problems that exist here as well. Now, the pollution is made up of factories, yes, but there's unbelievable growth going on here uh, that you you cannot imagine. Uh, I know it's a common phrase, oh, I took a two-week vacation and came back and everything's changed. But here it's true. (laughs) I mean, when I fly into a city, I may go to Nanjing or uh, Hangzhou or something, and there's not 
one major highway being built. There's three. Wow. And, I mean, we're talking eight lanes both ways and hundreds of apartment buildings and a gigantic stadium, all of this in one city. (laughs) So there's a lot of construction pollution as well. You know, it's not all just, uh, you know, what you might see on 60 Minutes, a a red chemical plume everywhere. Uh, You know, some is due to construction. Uh, In all honesty, to be partially fair and balanced, uh, even China is geographically in a region where there's a lot of water in the air. You know, so one of the things I was looking so forward to getting up and flying is seeing the rest of the country. It's like, what does this place look like? You know, you get up, oh, you can't see the ground. (laughs) 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 So it's still a mystery to me, Carl. (laughs) You're still looking for that clear day. (laughs) Well, but that, that's if something you were I to look know. at, say, uh, a seven-year-old painting, a 2,000-year-old painting, it's also misty, misty looking. And I'll tell you, there wasn't pollution then either. <laughs> right, right. That, that's interesting. But, so it, it's a combination of all, but you cannot argue. I don't mean to pretend by any stretch of the imagination that there's no pollution here because there is. Uh, all of us run around with these little, uh, oh, what's the index that pollution uses again? Oh God! I'd have, yeah. I'd have to turn on my phone, but there's hundreds of those apps, you know, that measure right. the the particles in the air at all the embassies in the different cities in China. You know, so I just happen to live in the cleanest city, so it doesn't bother me so much. But you know, Beijing is notorious. Many cities are. Sure, I mean cities in in you know the South and Central Americas. They have flags where they put up and. The kids can't go out and play sometimes if the red flag's up, that type of thing. So yeah. it's everywhere. And but but what else is there? I'm trying to figure out. You know, is there anything else like the water? You said it's safe uh, as far as like crime, etc. How about water, food, uh, and medical? Yeah, that that's where I kind of say a lot of it depends on where each person is going to draw the line. Uh, their own their own personal comfort zone, in other words, Carl. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly when it comes to food and medicine. Um, my wife uh, teaches aerobics and fitness, and she uh, she broke her toe one day. So we take her down, and we kind of we always first try the Chinese stuff, you know, before we go pedaling off to a, some sort of Western form of of whatever we're looking for. So we go down to the, the local hospital and uh, the doctor sees her and of course it's broken because it's sticking out at a right angle. And So he, uh, he massages it a little bit, much to my wife's pain. <laughs> and, and then he prescribes for us, gives us a prescription that we go downstairs for the pharmacy. And... Uh, I hand the slip to the, the gal at the desk, and she goes to the back of the room where there's a hundred different drawers, and she opens up one drawer, pulls out a little bag, and she throws it in the plastic bag. She does this about 30 times, Carl, and she comes over, and she gives it to us. And I look inside, and I, I ask uh, as best as I could communicate, what do I do with this? She goes on to tell me I should put it all in a pot, boil it, and have my wife put her foot above it. Now, each bag was like, one was a bag of bark, 
another one I'm sure was stones, another, you know, a couple of bugs and, you know, what have you, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, we actually did it just for the fun of it. Right, right. Now, I'll have to admit, to a certain degree it worked because the, the smell actually made my wife tired and she'd sleep and then she wouldn't be on her foot. <laughs> but did it, did it crack the broken bone? No, I'm afraid not. We yeah. absolutely went over to Hong Kong and had it reset and done properly. <laughs> no. At the same point, I can tell you, I, I do have friends that uh, have gotten wonderful medical care here. There's uh, different levels of hospitals here, Carl. And most here in uh, uh, China, uh, everything is done at the hospital. So if you have a cold, you go to the hospital. If you have a broken leg, you go to the hospital. And if you're having a heart attack, you go to the hospital. So the hospitals are crowded. They're not, it's not a pleasant experience. Of course, you can't read or understand anything that's going around there. Everybody's running around like crazy, standing in lines. Um, but that's at a normal hospital. They even have like VIP hospitals, which to a foreigner, we expect, oh my gosh, you know, a VIP, that must cost millions. Well, the funny thing is, is it probably costs about 10 US dollars more. Wow. <laughs> and you have a brand new hospital. Potentially, they do speak some English. Uh, the new ones do. They may have some specialists that trained in Hong Kong or overseas. Uh, but I have friends that have had their children born here, uh, kidney stones removed, and they will actually say they got good service. So you have the whole spectrum, Carl, is what I'm trying to say. Right. Uh, I cannot use a big paintbrush on this one and say all medicine is like this because it's not. You can go to the, uh, uh, what do they call the, the normal uh, Chinese medicine, uh, uh, having a brain fade here. But, you know, just your typical ancient Chinese medicine, you can go do that. You can go do acu acupuncture. Um, for convenience to me, I can go over to Hong Kong where... Uh, most of the physicians there are either European or American trained. Um, so it depends on your comfort level. When it comes to the food, Carl, uh, I happen to have the body type that uh, is very, uh, uh, how do I say, uh, I can eat anything right. <laughs> <laughs> and not get sick. I'm just lucky. You know, it, it's my body, you know. Uh, others... Not so much. Now, they use a lot of oils here, and out of a health perspective, you know, Western foods are available. In other words, you can go to, we have a Walmart in town. Oh, wow. Now, I'll tell you, it's like no Walmart you've ever seen, <laughs> but we have one, and it does have some Western items, and uh, in, in all the cities that 98% of the expats would be living in, uh, the Chinese being, uh, you know, holders of the Silk Road and entrepreneurs for the last 5,000 years, when they see an opportunity, they jump all over it. Uh, so if they see a little community of Westerners building up, my gosh, there's going to be this little miniature convenience store, but my God, it's got Betty Crocker, Shake and Bake, and Pringles potato chips. <laughs> <laughs> All the, all the necessities. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, is there anything else that stands, stands out as far as culturally that, uh, that you would 
tell people, hey, listen, this is something that you need to concern yourself with and, and make sure you know this is, I mean, we've went over a lot here, um, but, but what other concerns would someone have or have you seen in the past? Yeah, well, a lot of people look at the major organizations of the world, you know, whether that might be the World Health Organization and what's recommended as far as shots. Uh, that is actually quite minor for China, believe it or not. You know, as far as uh, malaria or anything that doesn't exist here, the, uh, the uh, uh, what was the chicken flu or whatever they called that thing? Oh, not the Ebola. Um, oh. Not the Ebola. Oh, yeah. The, it was like a, from mosquitoes or whatever. Yeah, the, the H1N1. H1N1, no, H1N1, yeah. Yeah, H1N1. Bird flu or something or other. You know, you see precautions for it, you right. know, and there's monitoring for it. Uh, is it something that I think of on a daily basis? Absolutely not. Now, if I was heading in down to Indonesia or something like that, yeah, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, no, I, I look at those types of things. So that is not significant here. Uh, so from a strictly kind of by the book, what you see uh, as threats health-wise, uh, you know, none of that is here. Uh, it's something that is monitored and watched, Carl, because obviously they've had this stuff in Asia and in fact, H1N1 originated in China, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, those things do exist. Um, but it's not something that you're faced with uh, on a daily basis. Other things, you know, the driving is crazy here. They don't drive fast, but there's absolutely no rules. Uh, so, you know, it was a long time before I let go of my daughter's hand on a road or a sidewalk, for that matter, because they're often there. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's crazy. But <laughs> yeah. Jeez, uh, when, when I return home, I, I, I get bored with driving so quick because it's like, man, it's so predictable here. People actually follow the rules. <laughs> you know? I'm so bored driving. <laughs> um, but... So uh, but I, I guess nothing jumps out at me uh, at the moment, Carl. I'm not yeah. saying that there isn't, but uh, nothing's Those popping are the big right. Things though, I think we've covered, and and obviously, if people have questions, they can send them in, and and I'll send them to you, and and say, hey, listen, this is this is something you guys didn't discuss, and and if you don't mind, I could forward them on to you, and, and uh, I'd be more than happy to, honestly, awesome. Carl, because awesome. as we said at the beginning, you know, I will try to be brutally honest with you, even the piloting, um. I only spoke from one perspective. I didn't speak from the perspective of many of the corporate pilots that I know, many right. of the cargo pilots that I know. Uh, so there's, there are different aspects even just to that. And so there are uh, culturally as well. Uh, to me, I think it's an unbelievable experience for me and my family. Uh, now, everybody's got a timeline. I'm not saying I'm going to retire here by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but... You know, I can honestly say my, my two daughters go to an international school uh, and they have absolutely no prejudice, Carl. You know, the first day of school every year I ask the question, okay, who has got the funniest name in your class, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we pick on that, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, they, one of the beauties about an expat 
position, and I suppose this is maybe true in a, a lot of areas, but, you know, our friends now, Carl, are all over the world, you know, uh, and the same with my, my children, you know, so they're going to school with Brazilians, Europeans, South Americans, Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, and they are all their friends, you know, there is no black, white, yellow, red, you know, what I'm saying, uh, and I like that, you know. Uh, they go to a, an American international school, so they do, they are accredited and whatnot, but they're learning some different uh, things than they would back in the U.S. that I like, but I guess I'm, I'm the kind of person that embraces these types of international experiences, you know, that's my wiring, uh, and so it's important to me, uh, but um, so culturally wise, it's amazing to be here. It's amazing to watch the growth uh, in the people. Um, you know, the, the, the culture is very strange, very strange. Uh, and I'm amazed by it every day. It's, it's strange good and it's strange bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it's really something to experience what most people only see on, uh, you know, National Geographic or, or another uh, you know, adventure series. Right. Or so, even in the news. I mean, you get a lot from your news too, little bits and pieces of the culture and that's it. Um, but hey, you know, one of the things before we, you know, we're coming to a close here, but I, there's a couple, two questions I had for you. Um, and I, I saved the best for last cause, and I purposely did this, um, uh, the financial benefits and, and how do you find a job? Number one, everybody talks about the money that you can make in China. Uh, I understand that, uh, the the money is pretty good. Um, and how would someone, or what kind of experience would someone need to go to China? Um, you know, do they hire first officers? Do they hire captains? And then, what type? You know, give me a range of of money that someone could make uh, flying over in China. Okay, good question. I don't mind addressing it at all. Uh, most of the captain positions, uh, Carl, will bring anywhere from fifteen to twenty thousand U.S. a month. Okay. It's unbelievable. That's it's great. great. Yeah. Uh, now, before the, taxes the, and then, or after taxes? Primarily after tax. Wow. Now that is pretty darn good. <laughs> wow. Now, it's, it's a risk that many airlines here take, Carl. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you have to be careful whether the Chinese company is actually paying the tax or not. Now, I'm not going to get into a long discussion on this, but. Uh, it will be written everywhere on a job ad in your contract and it will be told to you that they are paying it when the fact of the matter is they're not. Now, that's everybody's own risk to take on a personal level. Right, right. <laughs> uh, now, there are airlines that are also paying it. Uh, so uh, I'm just being, like I said, brutally honest with you. So, uh, But uh, airlines that are absolutely positively Paying it are maybe the fifteen thousand dollars. The ones that are twenty are the ones that are not paying it, but telling you they are. <laughs> right. And you could be liable for that, right? Well, there's going to be some point in time when the Chinese government smartens up to it, you know. And it's all a matter of the risk you are comfortable taking, you know. Right. So, so you have to do your research. Yeah. Well, absolutely, and of course. Uh, it's China is a part of the uh, worldwide tax agreement or whatever, so they fully report to the U.S. and all of that sort of thing. 
as well. Um, but at any rate, whether you're doing uh, cargo, uh, even the corporate, the corporate jobs are, and the cargo jobs are wonderful here too, in my opinion. Now, that's, uh, of course, the corporate jobs, you don't fly much here. Uh, number one, because once again, the airspace is controlled by the military. So it's not like you can just run to your FBO and file a flight plan and jump in your airplane and leave. There is no general aviation airspace in the country. So basically, you have to file a flight plan and leave tomorrow. Uh, so the corporate guy, yes, he's pretty much on reserve the whole time, um, but you're not a hot seat pilot, you know. You're not at the whim of two hours from now, I could be pre-flighting my airplane. Uh, and it does tie you down a little bit to the city that you're in, obviously. Um, but uh, if you have a family, even greater. I mean, these guys maybe fly 100 hours a year. Wow. 100 to 300. <laughs> That's not much at all. No, not at all. But you, what you have is this gigantic, you know, hugely wealthy in China that want to buy the, the nicest, newest business jet just to fly it from Beijing to Shanghai and show it off to his friends. <laughs> he doesn't need to go to Paris or Rio or anything like that. <laughs> right, right. So you end up flying your G5 for one hour down to Shanghai and you're done. <laughs> That's kind of a status but, symbol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but anyhow, back to the real question. Um, so, yeah, the pay levels for the captain are between 15 and 20, anywhere in there. And uh, schedules vary just as much. Uh, the schedules are a big thing because... Uh, for some people, it allows them to commute. Uh, for those that uh, don't mind or want to stay in country, the, you have the local schedule. But schedules range anywhere from, uh, I am a local guy, and my typical schedule is about four days on, two days off. I mean, it's a little bit brainless scheduling. It's not a fancy Sabre computer system. Um, but... Uh, and it, it goes up to some contracts are month on, month off. So there is some flexibility uh, in the country. So some research on what contract you're looking at is worthwhile. Uh, for the first officers, it's just becoming uh, doable, Carl. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the airlines, the whole reason we're here is... As you can imagine, you know, in a country with one and a half billion people, pardon my pun, but, you know, they can breed first officers like rabbits. Right, sure. <laughs> so first officers typically are not an issue here uh, because of the, the population, so to speak. It's experience that is the bigger issue. Right. But even that we are finding now, uh, some airlines hiring first officers, both in the corporate world and in the commercial aircraft. There are few, there are few opportunities, but they're beginning to to uh, begin. Right, right. So that's interesting. So that you know, the money's good. The the uh, you know, fine because that that type of the pay you're looking at with a with a major airline, you're looking. Till you and obviously you're, you'd be a captain. It might take you a little while, a little while longer to make it to that point right away. Um, and you're coming in at that level as a captain. 
Um, but but how how else um, would you find like a job in in China? I mean, it's uh, you go on the internet, of course. I've mentioned a few on this podcast. Um, is there is there anything to look out for? I mean, as far as are there scams out there, etc. Well, there's not so much a scam, Carl, to anything here as much as how much support are you going to get. That's where I see the differences. Most of the foreign contracts are offered through uh, the leasing companies, what they call pilot leasing companies, uh, who are representing the airlines here, finding Western pilots and helping them with the logistics of the interview and the hiring process. Um, But in my opinion, uh, obviously there's different levels of that type of company ones that will actually lie to you and tell you, oh, yeah, you can have 300 days off, uh, go and interview, you know. Of course, it's not true. Um, so uh, it does, I would say, uh, most of the major uh, pilot contracting companies are in the country, so to the likes of Wasink, Park, Aviation, uh, Rishworth, uh, all of them are in the country. Uh, but what would take, I think what most people uh, maybe would not anticipate but is valuable to research or to look into is how much support are you going to have while you're in the country. And, and that does vary a lot between the different leasing companies. You will sign your contract and some leasing companies you'll never hear from again. You sign your contract and another leasing company will be helping you find your housing. If you have a, a, a translations that need to be done, you know, to the point of where uh, if I call who I work with, uh, I'm in the taxi and I forgot my wallet at home. Uh, they tell all the pilots that as a service, hey, no, you call up our secretary, you tell them what your situation is, you hand the phone to the taxi driver or to the doctor or to the the water delivery man <laughs> and they work it out for you you know so a lot of the value of the company that brings you here is how much support they're going to provide you when you get here right so that's really important to ask those questions and uh and when you're listening to one you know talking to different ones obviously we've we've had uh, you know the, the only experience i've had is is with the uh, waz inc in the past and that was in episode uh, 11 and they've been terrific in in helping and following up in the past uh, that's the only one i can recommend but there's a, there's a lot of other ones out there that or there's a few others out there that are in country and and that's pretty important um, yeah. You know, we went over to the financial benefits and also, you know, how to find a job. But, you know, the one thing I didn't ask you, and, and, and then you can and add anything if we've forgotten anything, is uh, how often do you get to go home, home being the U.S.? Oh, well, <laughs> well, put it this way. I do have 30, 30 days of holiday a year, Carl. Well, um, yeah, and... Uh, I happen to be married to a beautiful Spanish woman, which uh, primarily right now we, we go back to Spain with our time off, or we're doing local traveling here in the region, uh, you know, learning the area around here. Um, but obviously, uh, with 30 days to choose from, I could be choosing America as well. Right. We just haven't recently. Right. But usually at least every other summer. 
But yeah, so you, you you know, 30 days, you know, that's a that's a big choice between where to go, especially Spain and the US, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely it is. Yeah, it is. Well, Doug, um, this is, this has been awesome. I mean, we, we there's there's so many things. I I'm probably going to have a lot of people ask more questions uh from everything you've brought up and um you know, I, 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 if someone has a question, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com/contact right into us and I'll send them along to Doug and uh, he'd be more than willing to, to ask answer them you know you know and, and of course you know give you this straight story which has been been awesome Doug is there anything else that we forgot is there any you know quick last thing you want to say to people that are considering uh, a job in China you know I, I think this is a pretty good primer Carl uh, obviously I can be much more specific on many aspects of it uh, but with one hour I uh, certainly, I was generalizing to a certain degree. Right. I, I more than welcome further questions, or if you want to point this along a more specific direction at any point in the future, I don't mind that as well, Carl. Great. Uh, but uh, I sure appreciate the opportunity, and it, it's a joy to talk to you. Yeah, Doug, this this has been awesome. I've learned so much, and I'm sure that that you listening right now have learned quite a bit. And, you know, like I said, just send them the information in. If you have questions, et cetera, there are certain things that you want to ask Doug, you know, on a personal basis that we really can't say discuss on the on the podcast. Uh, you know, they, hey, send them in, whatever it may be. Just send it in and ask, uh, and we'll, we'll pass that along. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we really appreciate Doug and, and all this time he's taken and all this information and and it's been been great to 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 listen to you and 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 talk with you and have this conversation about working in China. I've I've learned a lot. Our listeners have learned a lot, and and we look forward to to speaking with you again, Doug. Uh, thank you, Carl. I appreciate it. So if if you're listening right now and you and you appreciate the content, uh, please go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Go to the right column and visit some of our sponsors. Those are the folks that that bring this show to us here. And oh, the other thing too is the scholarships page. If you know people that are looking for money, no matter uh, what it's a flight attendant, mechanic, pilot, anything, take a look out there and, and maybe you can find something for them. There's so many scholarships that go unused. And just remember, if you're thinking about a job, whether it's in China, wherever it may be, do your research. Listen to things like this. Listen to podcasts. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Go out there, look at the websites, and when you look at all the different you know, posting boards, take everything with a grain of salt. Ask the person that's actually working there what they think, someone like Doug and somebody you may know through another contact. But you know, for, if you're looking at a job, if it's in China, whatever it is, do me a favor right now. Take, take that step towards finding more information about that job. Ask somebody a question, whether it's say you want to be a flight, a flight instructor at a certain flight school. Go over there to that flight school and say, hey, you know, what's it like to be a flight instructor here? But do something. Do something now. Take that first step towards your career goal. Well, folks, it was great talking to you. And then, well, hopefully we'll listen to you in the next episode and we'll be able to share some more information. Safe flying. Talk to you next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.